0: We're going to talk about the inkle.
1: Oh, God. Did you read it?
0: (laughs) There you go. ever watch the films of Alejandro Jodorowsky, you know they're weirdly absorbing and adhere to a surrealistic dream logic. In short, they make no damn sense, and that's not the point. And if you've ever picked up a comic from the legendary artist Mobius, you know that they too are weirdly absorbing, adhere to a surrealistic dream logic, and make no damn sense. So when the two collaborate on a sci-fi adventure like The Inkle, That involves a hormonal private investigator named John DeFool, a Siamese twin fetus that rules the galaxy, and a naked woman on a giant rat? Well, you know, it's not going to make any damn sense. (laughs) I've read The Inkle three times, and my reaction to it has gone from annoyance to bafflement to today when I find it completely trippy and absorbing. Are you saying I have to read this more than one time? You might have to go three times, Roman. I'm so sorry. (laughs) Oh, God! Well, I still don't know what it's about. Maybe we'll figure it out today, or maybe that's fruitless because it's not really about anything. Regardless, I'm Ryan Joe, And I'm Roman Segel. And Roman's a brown Inkle, and I'm a kind of yellowish Inkle.
1: That's kind of racist.
0: Very racist. <laughs> so, Roman, dare I ask what you thought? I like the pretty pictures. no you hated it did you did you hate did you hate it how much did you how much okay dislike hatred where are we in this in this kind of spectrum of not really digging it it was a slog you warned me because this book this hit
1: our schedule for the podcast months ago and i got it from the library and i was like when are we reading this when are we reading we kept kicking the can down the road and i couldn't renew this book anymore and it looks awesome and i knew it was going to be a thicker read and if you try to read it and try to make sense of it and don't just go along for what the moment i said i'm just going to go along for the ride is the moment i started to enjoy it however mm. that was halfway through it and then as i went further along i was like okay but when is this ride ending <laughs> like I, it it is just from one thing to the next thing to the next thing to the next thing there is some character development. I, I kind of would want to write out the outline of what the plot is, but it just goes from one thing to the next thing. And it's like this constant escalation. The book, the edition I have, has a forward by Brian Michael Bendis. And Mine too. Yeah. He effectively says, everything in modern sci fi cinema steals from the Inkle. I read that before I started reading. And I was, I was like, ah, I can't wait to at least see what looks familiar, right? Other than the fifth element. I didn't see a lot of blatant ripoffs, and uh, that's—I'm uh, getting away from the book, though. I—I I enjoyed it enough. Do I think this is one of the greats? I don't know. Maybe it's one of the first greats, but I don't think it stands the test of time. I don't—I don't know, Ryan. Maybe you can convince me otherwise. What about you? Um, so, the time number 3. What what did you reveal in the second Well, I time? think
0: actually so so what you said earlier, right? You kind of went maybe halfway before you just just decided to go with the flow. And when I first read it, I read it as I would a science a hard science fiction comic like okay, so what's what's the lore? What's the backstory here? How does this all add up? What's this god figure who probably is god appearing at the very end? How does this, you know, how does this all tie together? You know how in other comics we look for, you know, like we're talking about New X-Men, for instance, how Grant Morrison brings things up in the beginning of his run and pays it off at the end. I was looking for that. And that's why I was really, really frustrated the very first time I read it, because the narrative made no damn sense, and I was hoping for it to make sense in the way that sci-fi comics and novels typically have an internal logic. And the second time I read it, I was still kind of trying to decipher it. Like there's some sort of key that will unlock all meaning. And then finally, when I read it with you, I just decided, you know, hell with it. I'm not even going to try to look for any meaning. I'm not going to try. I'm just going to go with the flow. The plot's going to take me where it's going to go. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to just focus on the art and try to get as immersed as possible into what's going on and not ask why it's happening and not even ask how we got here or you know in terms of character motivation, who wants what? and that for me was the key and I know that sounds like this book's really bad basically shut off any no attempt to f- immersive immersive's the right word that's exactly what it yeah and you know if if you've ever seen like Hodorowsky's movies like uh, he there th- there are three that uh, I think he did, did three movies and they're all very, very odd and surrealistic and things happen without really any explanation and it's really about the visuals the composition he tends to like crowds of people doing horrible things like eating an elephant for, but you know that's which <laughs> you can kind of see reflected in, in the ankle as well you know it's it, he's a, he's a storyteller where you just kind of have to get you know let the images wash over you appreciate the moments not so much how those moments add up in a greater narrative. And once you can do that, I think you'll have a really really fun time because his images are I think truly one of a kind and very very unusual. And he's aided a great deal by uh, the French the legendary French artist Mobius who, you know, is is the Inko is sort of a virtuosic display of Mobius's talent because of the different scenarios. Yeah, it, it takes it, you it, to. He's, he
1: has a lot of. He has to have a lot of range to make it work because there's just so much batshit crazy stuff happening, ideas being communicated, and it doesn't get surrealist. It like some of the other books we've read, it, but I mean, it's a very literal depiction of everything that's happening. But as we've said on other episodes there's never a moment where I need guidance on what's happening or where I'm looking or there's no telegraphing. It just works. So the guy knows his shit.
0: It's not surrealist the way Ed the happy clown, I think is surrealist where things just sort of happen for like really no reason. There is usually a reason why things are happening. There is this meta narrative of them trying to dispatch this ultimate dark entity but normally you'd expect some sort of foundational lore that would kind of serve as a scaffolding for all of these set pieces and that doesn't really hold up but what do you mean why, why doesn't it hold up i mean
1: there there's world building it makes sense I, I mean i i never when something happened with any of these like massive governmental or societal groups be it the bergs the the warring factions of i guess the united federation of planets for better or for worse uh, the motivations more or less hold and yeah. i never felt like the scaffolding was falling apart what what is what is an Inkle exactly oh okay so the that part yeah but i mean i'm sorry i was thinking the like the motivations and the constructs of the surrounding universe i mean the inkle's a, a a sentient sentient superpower object i don't know
0: <laughs> ex- ex- exactly i guess i guess maybe that's where i was coming from Right? Got it, the whole, got it. the whole basis of this good, the white ankle and the black ankle and they, do they merge and how does the black ankle and there's a and and they possess the kid. Yeah. Yeah. And, but you know, again, like that was one of those things where in this when in this read through, I just thought, you know, I don't care. It doesn't Fuck matter. It, gonna, it. Uh, exactly. And that's where, and that's where I kind of had the most success with just, just enjoying the, the moment by moment events that happened in this book.
1: I don't know how it was released originally, but I'm, you know, every call it 15 or 20 pages, you change the scene or the scenario. And sometimes it's a straight to be continued, but there's a title card, but be it yes. the Crystal Forest or something. And I'm guessing those were individual issues. But in between those call, call it title cards were effectively a micro adventure, almost like a mission in a video game was what it felt like. Mm. Yeah, I and like the
0: way you just described that. Actually, it's very episodic. You know, within this, the short chapter, there's this big thing that needs to happen. And then it happens and that kind of progresses us to the next, the next big level thing that needs to happen, yeah. the next level. And then it happens. And, you know, I'm curious, because you had mentioned that after a while you were asking when does this ride end? And I'm kind of wondering, when did you start to feel that the book had worn out its welcome? You know, they had so many fights with the dark egg or the dark
1: ankle and Had the stakes been lower, like it felt like an almost like a fetch quest, like we got to get the thing to get the thing to get the thing. But it felt like the stakes were so high every time you went up against the Black Inkle versus these are, you know, the moves on the chessboard. And it wasn't communicated that way. It was, it felt like the life and death battle every time they went up against it. And I just, it's kind of like fool me once, fool me twice. And by the second or third time, by the time they're on the water planet, and the next big mission is you've got to go impregnate the bird queen. I'm like, what? I mean, huh? you didn't love that. I love I that. did. No, I liked it. But because at, at that, it's, if anything, that was the comic relief that needed, that got me over the hump because right before that, they just been on a mission and DeFool is like, I'm done. Anima. Can we just, can we just go like, I let's go off. Let's run away together. And he's like, you got to do this one more thing.
0: He's like, And that one, which is by the way, kind of a constant trick of hers. She's like, Oh, Anima, I really want to, I just want to go off. There's just two of us and we can get laid. And she's like, Oh, yeah, totally. I'm really into that. But could you just do this one more thing and go, like, get the bird queen pregnant or infiltrate the dark whatever? Yeah.
1: And it's just, and he does that. And then there's another mission. I don't remember what the next mission is. Oh, then it is actually the big end of Return of the Jedi battle, you know, where. The little kid becomes like an androgynous two-person egg, whatever.
0: And then they're like... Before he was a a spaceship, I just want to point that out. (laughs) He went from a kid to becoming a spaceship to becoming an androgynous egg. Actually, to becoming a uh, diamond to becoming a spaceship. Oh, right. I forgot about the diamond phase.
1: But And then it's like... uh, Here's what I'd say. The, The end didn't stick the landing, but there were two kind of absurdist missions that they sent Defool on one was impregnate the queen and one was put all the children of the impregnated queen to bed and those are mm. probably I don't want to say they're my favorite chapters but because they just took me out of the monotony of the fetch quest uh, or of the next big bad boss to these just like John Defool silly adventures and those ones were some of my favorite like when John DeFool was literally, and i I, this is gonna sound terrible i didn't realize till those chapters towards pretty much the end of the book oh his name is john the fool ha 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 Mm -hmm. like i just i purposely read it as okay i'm not gonna make fun of a name it's clearly some weird sci-fi character's name but by the time you get to these chapters and he has to do these ridiculous things i'm like ah okay i get it that's i kind of feel
0: i kind of feel those two those two quests impregnate the queen put the kids to bed Kind of like reflects your life the most. It's sort of like something that you can really latch on to. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I, but the characters,
1: with the exception of Defool, and that's fine. He's introduced as kind of maybe the everyman. You're seeing it and experiencing it through his eyes. He just wants to get laid. He just wants to get high. That's all he wants. And he, the world keeps pulling him along to kind of save the universe. But everybody else. All of the other characters, there's no depth to any of the other characters. I didn't, and I barely cared about DeFool, to be clear.
0: Yeah. Actually, my favorite character
1: was the president. Oh, no, my favorite character was uh, his little cement bird.
0: (laughs) Oh, the cement bird is pretty cool, too. Yeah.
1: What's his Um, name? Deeper something, I don't know, man. That's the, I can't remember half the people's names. The only reason I remember the, the like super ultimate fighter guy's name is because on the last page of the book, they say, Oh, here are all these other Inkle books you should read. And he apparently has his own miniseries, The Meta Baron. I wanted to like The Meta Baron when they introduce him and it's like, We have your son. You're the ultimate fighter who's sworn off of fighting. You must fight to save your. I was like, Okay, there's something here. And then you find out, you know, that him and Anima had the kid. Maybe, you know, it's like I wanted. To care more about these other people. And I I don't even remember is the other girl who wasn't Anima. Was that the girl who tricked Meta Baron into fighting the I, it's like I don't know? And I stopped caring. And oh the bird's name is Depot,
0: by the way. The Thank cement you. bird is Depot, yes.
1: Oh don't don't uh, forget Kill Beast or whatever. Kill
0: Yeah, kill uh kill Wolfhead, who yeah. is a giant dude, who is like a massive a massive dude, buff dude with the head of like a German shepherd, who for a while was just pissed off that John DeFool shot a hole in his ear, which yeah, I actually pre- appreciated that yeah. consistency. He kept, he kept had that hole in the ear and he still constantly throughout, even when they were allies, pissed off that John had shot him. I feel the characters kind of served, you know how I was, I mentioned that I was just you know, immersed in this and a large part of it has to do with the environments that Mobius created from the vertical city where the where the aristocrats are on top and the poor people and the acid lake is on the bottom. When did that, this come uh, out? Really quick. When did... 1980s. So that's another
1: or... thing George Lucas totally stole that in the Star Wars prequels. Coruscant, like yeah, the the lower levels. Yeah. Anyway,
0: interesting. Oh, but yeah, it's possible. Well, actually, I do want to talk about sci-fi uh, influences later on because I did. I, I think I kind of found a few of them that I wanted to point out to you. Please, but, please. So there's that. There was the, the, the underwater colony, the prison world. There was the Grand Hall where the, I guess, where parliament takes place, where the Siamese twin fetus is presiding over everything. All of these moments were incredibly immersive to me. They were just so weird and bizarre. And I feel like the characters, even though in terms of personality, they had very little going for them, with the exception of John DeFool depot and the president who's this very strange creature who keeps us trying to hunt them down in different robot bodies the characters are part and parcel of the environments right they're such weird looking people and the most ordinary person is the kid and obviously they solve that by turning him into a spaceship very early on so suddenly he becomes a lot more interesting so I feel like, you know, this isn't really a book about character. It's not really a book about ideas, though. Hodorowsky does have certain, like, there is like a philosophy here, which I think can be summed up by like, just chill out, man. That seems to be the f- the, the, the philosophy. Literally, every time there's a conflict and they need to summon some spiritual power to deal with a the conflict, they're always like, clear your minds, be cool, it'll be fine. That's like every. Conflict is resolved that way, and that's fine. I'm sort Very of like, Lebowski. well, you know what? It also reflects the way you got to go with this book. You know what? Chill out. Don't look for a plot. Don't look for things to, or you know, there's a plot, but it's just rudimentary. Just you know, just go with the flow, and it'll be fun. So, well, because,
1: because you know what, the credit I will give that the the narrative and the arc of life, there is no story, there is no plot, and so if anything never mind all the sci-fi tropes in this or the tropes of sci-fi that emanated from this maybe that's the point it's just like shit happens and this is just this is literally just our illustration of shit happening over and over and over again
0: to that point i just turned to page 108 where they're riding giant rats through an underground garbage field as you do psycho rats by the way which are like not real rats, but just rats that materialize based on your fears. Anyway, yeah, and when you chill sc- out, when you chill out, they go away. They go away. But there's a scene where these bubbles in the subterranean garbage heap burst, and a rain of leeches, flying leeches, falls on them, and they're like, "Flying leeches, run!" Two panels of flying leeches, and then it's just like onto the next thing. So I kind of like how each panel is stuffed with this weird imagination. And you're right in certain in certain comics sci-fi stories you'd actually want the writers to and the artists to explore that explore the implication of these things but or there's a motivation for why that thing happened why why are there flying leeches in subterranean acid bubbles i don't know who knows and you know what though i mean i feel like even at you know from the first pages they're uh, Mobius and Holorowski are moving at such a quick pace and showing you so many new things that they kind of establish. okay here's how to read this you got to just kind of keep pace with the weirdness accept that it's happening and move forward
1: but, th- but then there were moments where there were moments when they tried to dig a little bit deeper when they tried to create character beats and as a result they fell flat because there was no context for which they could sit and be it the kid talking to his dad, the Meta Baron, like right after that moment mm-hmm. happens, those two try to have a moment and the pain of the kid. And why doesn't mommy love me? Anima being his mommy? Or later on, one of the fat government villains wanted his sister back. Maybe. And you know, it's funny. Sometimes there were things where I was like, what did that happen? Because I was just trying to read through fast to it. Maybe I missed it because I was just trying to power through it. But it's just, they try to have these interesting Character beats and character interactions that are rooted in something, and the payoffs aren't
0: there. On page two hundred seven, right, John DeFool has finally kissed Anima, the woman that he loves, and then he's disintegrated as things happened. Uh, b- and,
1: b- to be clear, by the Berg Proto Queen, who he impregnated, uh, and his an epic pyramid battle, yes.
0: You and in and, and then the next page you have the meta barons like, oh, how could Anima love that worthless bum is beyond me? And and his son, who at this point is not not a spaceship, but a, a diamond of some sort. Because you know that's how this that's how things happen here. Says, it's useless, Meta Baron. Face the truth. Anima and John love each other. She will never be yours. And then there's this panel of the meta-baron like clenching his teeth, looking like he's taking the biggest shit of his life, but it's his rage. <laughs> I'm taking a picture and of that one. It never in the past had the meta-baron shown any romantic or sexual interest in Anima. And in and only in this brief moment, only in these brief pages, is he. Is he is he showing any jealousy? And then, of course, Anima's sister says, "Oh, you know what? But we can we can hang out. Anima's a twin sister who's hanging out with them. And is that she, who it was? So that
1: wasn't the woman who conned the Meta Baron into joining the quest.
0: She's one and the same. They're sisters. Okay, got it. Got yeah. it. Yeah. On the one hand, it bothers me, but on the other hand, I'm not really looking for any character beats. Uh, and and it feels like it's so abstracted.
1: Oh, and and by the way, with within the end of that next page they bring DeFool the back from disintegration.
0: <laughs> Straight yeah. up Hoxpox style. The thing with you know in Hoxpox, that was sort of like a big serious event. Here it's almost treated just with you know the meta baron's sudden jealousy and his weird rage that almost is played for laughs. So even the emotion, the emotional, you know, ties of like, you know, the Meta Baron's jealousy, who is, you know, the spaceship's father. Is it the Meta Baron? Is it is it John DeFool? You know, the son being upset that Anima, who is his mother somehow, is not paying attention to him. It's like an overture towards characterization without, you know, almost almost like characterization just to fill up the page a little bit. One thing, this book is not lacking. Ideas and shit yeah. to fill
1: up the page. And so when they had to take a break, to, and it, it almost felt like a shitty commercial for some other drama, some spin-off series when they did that. It, it
0: wasn't, I if was... anything... It, it, i didn't need it because by that point okay. i've let go i was okay with it because i i i just I, I said earlier it's sort of like an abstraction of actual emotion sort of like the way this the whole plot is structured where things just happen really quickly and then first this happens and then that happens and then this happens and then they're jealous with each other and then they're not jealous you know I, I i kind of felt it was all sort of part and parcel of the pacing
1: okay much respect to mobius But why did he have to sign the bottom right-hand corner of nearly every page?
0: Honestly, the dude is kind of a legend. I mean, by 1980, the guy, 81, when this book came out, the guy was like, the guy was highly, highly influential.
1: I'm not schooled in the world of Mobius, and I do want to look at more of his stuff and see how it plays maybe with other authors where there is a story. But two things jumped out at me, and I'm, I'm... As we go read, I mean, you said this came out in the 80s. like, And we've read some stuff that's from far before. And, I, you know, it's like, who influenced the Beatles? And when I was looking at his work, I was like, wow, this is really familiar. And I started thinking, like, oh, Keith Giffen, Frank Quietly. Like, just be it Keith Giffen's attention to detail, the way Frank Quietly draws human expressions. It's either similarities or homages, and they were in love with Mobius. But I could kind of, like, Hear the echoes of the current artists that I have come to admire. So oh, absolutely!
0: Yeah, absolutely. A, a big one is Jeff Darrow. He did Rusty oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And Boy yeah. Robot, really influenced by Mobius. And Jeff Darrow was a big influence in the designs in the Matrix movies. Yeah. So you know you can kind of trace this connection between Mobius to to the Matrix. Oh, Ronin by Frank Miller. If you read yeah. those opening pages of Ronin. If you have the book, check it out. It's it's the the part where they're in the future. That's pure Mobius. I mean that's even even down to the weird hats. Mobius likes these conical hats. And I believe that Frank Miller adopts them heavily in in, in the early pages of what's, what's
1: Mobius' seminal work? Like is this it? Um like if I wanted to go dive in and find one other Mobius thing to
0: So to uh on. the easiest to get probably is the world of Edina, which mm-hmm. is like this. It's it makes as much narrative sense as this though it's a little bit less madcap i actually like the Inkle more that and that's easy to get because dark horse released a version of it Look other ones yeah the other ones were published intermittently like in a in a pulp style magazine like arzak and airtight garage and those actually showcase some of his best work but they're a little bit trickier to find and they're also mostly in french I don't know if there's any English translation of it. If you like his comb- if you like his collaborations with Hodorowski and want something kind of different, I would suggest there's a black and white comic, very short, called "The Eyes of the Cat," which is a bit of a kind of a horror comic. And then Mad Woman of the You know, you know, Heart. I love
1: me some horror comics, Brian. Yeah,
0: I well, you know what? If you liked if you like Junji Ito, you'll actually you'll love <laughs> Eyes of the Cat, slightly less body horror. And then Mad Woman of the Sacred Heart is more is a more grounded uh, story about about I think a philosophy professor I can't remember exactly it's been a while since I read that one and then he also did a western called Blueberry which. I have only been able to find in Fragments, which kind of pisses me off. I wish they'd reprint that. And that one's a very interesting one because it's sort of like, it it feels like a spaghetti Western, like the spaghetti Westerns were like an Italian's take on this piece of American arcana. I don't even know if that's the right word. And then Blueberry is sort of like Mobius, who's French, his take via a spaghetti Western on on American iconography. But that one I have not read all the way because I haven't, honestly, I haven't been able to find it. Honestly, finding Mobius' work is—I wouldn't say it's difficult, but it's so fragmented. I don't—I don't know who has a rights to it, and so it's not—it's not like there's a Mobius omnibus. But I do feel like he's such a seminal artist and such an amazing and immersive artist that that he's worth—he's worth tracking down. Absolutely. Oh, you know the other influence I wanted to bring up, and this is actually going back to uh, Saga, the jellyfish.
1: Yeah, the, hey, the pyramid jellyfish.
0: Yeah, cuz I was looking at that I was like, "Oh, I think I saw that in Saga." So I I kind of feel like, you know, we're even seeing other other modern sci-fi comics kind of taking taking a page from well, from an idea. Uh, talk to Mobius. me
1: more about that. So uh you alluded to Jeff Darrow and the Matrix, I've called out the Fifth Element, the even the Star Wars prequels. What are what are some of the things that I mean, and Bendis was he was like Oh my god, the industry's completely ripping off this book. And so I was looking for really literal things, but there are some concepts. So what are some of those that those references that you know about?
0: Like Nabu, for instance, in the Star Wars almost kind of feels like Mobius, though I don't know if that was an actual an actual direct influence. Hmm. Um and then the other thing that he's really good at is just the drawing people and hmm. just a lot of attention to like human movement. He has these panels and they're always filled with like people who even if they're not part of the action, he like draws like each person. You can kind of like zero in on a specific on, on any corner of a very detailed splash page and find like a little mini story.
1: And huh. you I know, think you know you know who does that really you know who does that really well? There's a kid's author, Polish. It's almost these weird proto wears Waldo books. Gosh, what is it'll come back to me. I'll give you the name of it soon. Keep going, but sto- stories and the details.
0: The, the other thing that Mobius does that, you know, and, and I know Brian McElbendis is it's, it's it's imitated. I think I I honestly think as more people try to imitate it, but they can't because Mobius is one of those rare artists who does everything well. Like there are certain artists who like Frank Quiet. Well, Frank Quietly is actually pretty good at everything maybe. except for deadlines. There, are, but there are certain artists who maybe they're just really good with you know drawing you know superhero poses like Jim Lee there are other gar- artists who are really good at kind of making two heads talking interesting there are other artists who are really good at light and shadow mobius is good i mean and that that's that's what i what i mentioned earlier that this feels very virtuosic mobius is kind of throwing all, like i feel like it's almost his entire skill set at this book everything is different you have the like the draftsmanship of creating this vertiginous city in the opening pages vertiginous you know you have the very odd characters designs of you know shortly after of this woman who basically has sex with uh kill wolfhead who is this character with uh, the big character with the head of a dog you know you have the journey through the sewers you have the journey through the acid lake you have the you have the the weird trash heaps that are underground you have the the penitentiary planet that's underwater and then you have these action sequences like out of return of the jedi at the very end where everyone's just shooting lasers at each other you have a gladiatorial sequence all of these things are you know basically just like a showcase of mobius's abilities as an artist and from his ability to just kind of show people negotiating you know, to try to come up with like a marketing campaign so that everyone goes to sleep. I mean, that's that's an actual thing that he illustrates. To to these wild action sequences and these splash pages, you know, he's he's literally good at, at and even even beyond this, he's also a really good painter. So it's not so much like Mobius inspired the comic industry with one thing. It's he was so good at everything that you can kind of see his influence rebounding over the, over the years. Would you ever,
1: I mean, there's a ton of other stuff that Odorowski created in the universe of the Inkle um, prequels and post-school yeah
0: i haven't read it so i don't know i've i've only read i've only read the stuff that he collaborated with mobius mad woman of the sacred heart and and eyes of the cat and i've seen his movies and his movies are trippy as hell
1: well so something i read you know after i finished reading a book for quarantine comics i like to read the reviews just because like sometimes i don't know what to make of it and it helps it gives me kind of like what angles do i agree with and not and one thing i read and you know i was like why is
0: uh
1: odorowski like really familiar sounding a few years ago, there was a documentary called Odorowski's Dune, and it's the week that we're recording this. What's-his-name's trailer for the new Dune movie came out. Oh, the guy and, read,
0: did Blade Runner 2049. Right. Oh. And my point being, apparently,
1: Odorowski read Frank Herbert's Dune and wanted to make one. And there, it, you know, by the time he finished all the storyboards and he worked with Mobius to do this, it was going to be a 10-hour movie. And it was an obsession of his, and it never happened. They lost their funding. And there's a documentary that came out a few years ago about this, which I have not watched, called Odorowski's Dune. And, But in this article, reviewing the Inkle, when it kind of talks about Doroski's obsession with Dune, it says, well, what did he do with all those storyboards? He made the Inkle. So is this derivative of his or is this literally directly linked to the dune that
0: he wanted to make he has said it is so that's so i take him at his word no, well, so i take him at his <laughs> word that 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 yeah he said like if you want to see what i was doing for dune pick up the inkle i have not so here's the confession i have not read dune and i'd not have not seen that documentary i have seen the david lynch dune under the influence which i have thoroughly enjoyed but i also know that that's probably not a really good way of assessing what you know what what dune is actually about so yeah i i i can't say by the way hodorowsky's dune also was supposed to ha- uh, also hired h.r giger who created the visual for the alien in the ridley scott movies hmm that was actually one of his issues i think he he said he got a lot of talent to work on dune but it was so delayed and then soon everyone started t- stealing his talent
1: Wow. Well, there you go. You know what this book feels like? I'm glad I read it, but it feels like high school required reading. And, and I underline, there's ah. so many books in high school, in junior high, that I didn't want to read. As an adult, I'm glad I read it. I have an opinion on this quote unquote great work. And that's how I feel about this book. Like I can recognize why it's on the list of the books. If you're serious about the medium and the art form you should have read. It feels like required reading. And I'm okay with that, you know, because I would not have read this if it weren't for you, if it weren't for this podcast. And I'm more knowledgeable of the medium. I, I have an opinion on Yodorowsky and Mobius and a curiosity about them. And I understand a little more about what Bendis is saying about how so many people lifted from and were influenced by this.
0: But that for doesn't me, mean I have to love it. <laughs> yeah no 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 no. it doesn't mean you have to love it at all in fact i did not love it the first time i read it
1: you know what okay, let if me you, ask you another question so you've read it three times have you read it why did you pick it up the first time first
0: i was into mobius okay got I, it. I had and, i had and, I picked and up then a few did,
1: blueberry comics
0: so, and so yeah so that then, was...
1: does that mean the second and third time you owned it and so you decided to pick it back up and read it
0: yeah the second time i bought owned it and i had also i had seen hodorowsky's santa sangra which is his serial killer movie that one probably makes the most sense of all his movies and is still fucking weird it's about a a serial killer who is possessed by his handless mother and she basically uses his hands to kill i think i described that correctly (laughs) But you get the picture, and so after that, I'm like, oh yeah, Hodorowski did the he did the the, he did this thing with Mobius. I should pick that up. And then I read it, and I was was baffled. You know, I think I think being you know kind of more familiar with who Hodorowski was, I kind of came into it with a little bit you know prepared. You know, when you're when you first pick it up, you're like, oh, I'm sure this is a regular, conventional science fiction story and you're going to be disappointed. And then now when I read it with you, it was just like, I know what to expect. It's not going to add up. It's not supposed to add up. A lot of it is new age claptrap. Forget about it. Just enjoy it. And, you know, Roman, that's how I would kind of, not, you know, in five years, 10 years, maybe when you're celebrating sending your daughter off to college, pick it up and just go with the flow and see if your perception of it changes.
1: I'm more curious about watching Odorowski's Dune, that documentary now after having read The Inkle, than I am because of my excitement of the new Dune movie, if that makes sense.
0: Well, you know, there are always these kind of rabbit hole stories and movies and comics where you kind of dive into a creator's bibliography and you find something obscure and strange and it just sticks with you so maybe the inkle is something that you're like who the hell is mobius i should read more about him who the hell is hodorowsky i should check out that dune that, that dune documentary or i should you know see some of his weird ass movies so it could you know in in a way i i, I kind of i like thinking that it is going to stick with you the images the visuals are not easily forgotten and partially that's because you're going to see them again when you consume some other piece of pop culture. What's interesting, when I finish reading it, you go
1: to the last page of the collected edition, I think, that we both have in our hands. And there's this page that shows all of these other books to read. And there's literally a thing called the the Hodoverse. Like, hmm. And all of this, he's a, the world building continues into these other things that he's done. And I, as I've been kind of looking up on my phone, some of his other books, I don't know if this is accurate. There's a book you know, a book called Deconstructing the Inkle and that book, literally the book about deconstructing the Inkle won an Eisner. And I'm like, what? (laughs) Like a a book about the book has won an Eisner. And so there is something more and maybe I've only read it once.
0: Well, look, I know you're dropping it off, but what's to keep you from picking it up from the library five or 10 years from now, right? You can, especially if it sticks with you, if you know, you might, one day you might be just be in the library, like, Hey, just. Check it out again. yeah, fair point. Yeah. all right. well, so so next week, I, I get this as we're reading something that's a little bit more grounded.
1: <laughs> next week, we are reading Watson and Holmes. Now, you could say Ruman, you got that backwards. it's It's the other way around. This is about Sherlock Holmes. I'm not sure it is. I don't have anything prepared about this, but Watson and Holmes is a modern day in Harlem retelling. Of our favorite detective and his sidekick, or is it the sidekick and his favorite detective? Joining us will be Chris Walker, rising comic book media empirist. And we're going to talk about the black version of Watson and Holmes, nominated for an Eisner Award. So it should be a lot of fun.